The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. All right. Good morning, Bereans. Today marks the 1,000th message of Berean Bible Church. All right. Um, we put a media number on each message that we do, and today is number 1,000. But, in 1998 through 2000, we did two messages some weeks, and they were numbered A and B. So, today's message is actually 1,084. But, it's media number 1,000, so we're going with that, okay? So, this is kind of like a big day, 1,000 messages for us. Uh, So, I want to talk a little bit about this church and how it got started and where we're going, all right? We started Brian on April 27th, 1997. This April, yeah, that was my birthday. This April will be 23 years. That's really hard to believe. So I thought it'd be beneficial to share with you exactly, you know, how this church came into being. Rich and I, Rich Nemec, some of you have met him. He's spoken at one of our conferences. He's been here before. Rich and I, along with two other men, were pastoring a local church in Virginia Beach. Another man and I were on staff as full-time pastors, and Rich and this other elder, um, they had full-time jobs, but they shepherded with us. So there's four of us who were pastors, elders of this church. Things were going really well at the church. I mean, we struggled for a long time with the church, and we got to the place now where it was really growing, uh, finances were good, things were just going good. Then something changed everything. I had a paradigm shift in my eschatology. And talk about rocking the boat. Well, in the early weeks of January 1997, I received a phone call from an old friend that I hadn't heard from or seen for over 10 years. Um, His name was Vince. Vince called me. And as we talked, he said to me, Larry tells me that a mutual friend of both of ours, he said, Larry tells me you're a preterist. And I responded, yes, I am. I really wasn't, but I thought I was. I said, yes, I am. Then he asked me, do you take it all the way? And I asked him, I said, I don't understand what you mean by that. He said, do you believe that all prophecy was fulfilled? I said, no, of course not. What are you talking about? So he briefly shared with me the preterist view, uh, which taught that the Lord Yeshua had returned in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, establishing the new heavens and the new earth, bringing in the resurrection and the judgment. Well, I thought he was mad. I mean, I got off the phone with him and I thought, he must be nuts. He just definitely lost his mind. He had a stroke or something. I don't know what happened. You know, he, was, he just didn't know what he was doing anymore. Well, up until that time, I was a partial preterist. I didn't know it because I didn't know there was such a thing as a full preterist. So I, to me, I was just a preterist, all right? Partial preterists believe that many of the end time prophecies have been fulfilled but not all of them. They're still looking forward to the return of Christ, the judgment, the resurrection. Full preterists, on the other hand, believe that all prophecy has been fulfilled. Now, I'd spent many years working on my eschatology, and I really felt I had it worked out. (laughs) I'd held to a preterist ah-mill theology for about eight years, and I believed that most of the book of Revelation had been fulfilled, up to chapter 20. 
and that the destruction of Jerusalem was a coming of the Lord. Not the coming, but a coming. Alright? I still look for a future return of Christ to bring in the resurrection, the judgment, the new heavens and earth. Well, although I was comfortable with my eschatology, I was still kind of troubled by the end of the book of Revelation. See, I believe that Yeshua had returned in judgment in AD 70. As I said, I saw that as a coming, not the coming. And I believe this because of the time statements. You know, and, and I don't know how anybody gets over the time statements in Scripture other than ignoring them. Because they're very clear. All right? I was at a car dealership this week. My car is being worked on. And, and I'm standing there in the showroom and I hear one of the salesmen say, Preterist. So I turned over, I walked over to him, I said, What did you say? And he said, you know, he was against preterism. And I said, well, and I started talking to him. He goes, I don't, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I'm like, what do you mean you don't want to talk about it? Well, we talked for a while, and he's in, during the conversation, he's telling me, I'm just really open to whatever the Lord has to show me. I'm like, accept preterism. I'm like, you don't even want to talk about it. You know, how do you get anywhere when you won't talk about something? You know, but he just was adamant. I don't believe it. I don't want to talk about it. I'm like, because I was going to take him to the time statements. I'm like, let's, let's just look at what the Bible says and just be open to letting the Bible speak to us, okay? Revelation 1, 1 through 3 says, The revelation of Yeshua the Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. All right, so God is giving this revelation to Christ. He's giving it to his servants to show them what's going to happen Soon. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Yeshua the Christ, even all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, I like to show these verses to people, then I ask people this. Who was the book of Revelation written to? Okay, the seven churches. Because see, that's what it says. But most Christians today think the book of Revelation was written to them. Ask them. Just go up and ask. Hey, who was the book of Revelation written to? It's written to us. They act like it's a newspaper, like some newsboy is going by on a bike and he threw this Bible up on their porch. Oh, look what today came. Soon. Yes, I can't wait. No, no, no. That was written 2,000 years ago. It's not written to you. And John tells us specifically who he's writing to. It's not complicated. Look what he says in Revelation 1.4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you, peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. Alright, these seven churches are in Asia Minor. People, they are literal, real churches. Alright, that were there. And, and John follows the pattern here. He goes from Ephesus to Smyrna, and then he goes to Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, like a route that they would take delivering these letters. These seven churches existed at the time. There were real people in those churches, just like our churches here. And there's real people here. It's like, if we got a letter today from an apostle, I wouldn't believe it. <laughs> And, and he goes on and he names the seven churches in verse 10 and 11. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. Okay, Write this down, John, and send it 
to the Christians at Berean Bible Church. That's not what it says. Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Notice that, you know, see what he didn't say here? He didn't say, send it to the church in America in the 21st century. This book was sent to seven churches in Asia, listen, in the first century. And he names the churches very specific. That's who this book was written to. Now, the church in Thyat- to the church in Thyatira, Yeshua said this, Only hold fast what you have until I come. Okay, the people in the church at Thyatira get this message from the Lord because he addresses each one of the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3, giving each church a specific message. He said, hold fast till I come. Now listen, people, if language means anything, does not, not mean he would come in their lifetime. Hold fast until I come. I'll be there within 2,000 years. Hang on. That makes no sense, people. Okay? Now, most commentators of Revelation violate the basic hermeneutical principle of audience relevance, which seeks to discover what the original readers understood a passage to mean. The concern of the interpreter is to understand the grammar of a passage in light of the historical circumstances and context of the original audience. In Revelation 1.1, he said... These things are going to soon take place. He specifically states that the prophecies of this book are going to take place in a short time. He emphasized this truth in a variety of ways through language. He carefully varies the manner of his expressions as if to avoid any potential confusion on the matter. The Greek word soon here in Revelation 1.1 is tachos. And according to Art and Gingrich lexicon, tachos is used in the Septuagint and in certain non-canonical writings to mean speed, quickness, swiftness, haste. John uses the same word in Revelation 2, 16, 3, 11, and then in 22 he uses it in verse 6, 7, 12, and 20. So as you can see, this book is bracketed by these time statements. In the verse 3 he says the time is near. Here he uses the Greek word engus, which is translated near in 1.3 and in 22.10. This term speaks of temporal nearness, and John again uses this term to bracket the book. The third Greek term he uses is mellow. Revelation 1.19 says, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those things that are, and those things that are to take place after this. Now, Mellow is used here and in 3.10, but you can't see it here because the translators don't put it in. And if you want to get a good sense of the tense of the words, you go to Young's, and here's what Young says. Write the things that you have seen, the things that are, and the things that are about to. That's what mellow means. About to take place. They're about to come. These things are going to happen. Young's makes that clear. As I said, mellow is also used in 3.10. He says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Again, if you go to Young's, the hour of trial that is about to come. Now, if we apply the principle of audience relevance, what would the original readers, those people in the church of Philadelphia, that's who he's writing to in Revelation 3.10, what would they have thought when they read this? It's about to come. 
John was telling the seven churches to expect these things at any moment. So based on these time statements and a lot of others, I believe back in 1997 that Yeshua had come in a sense. I couldn't get around the time statements, but I didn't quite understand it. The thing that troubled me was the book of Revelation ended with the same time statements that it began with. But I couldn't put it all in there. Let's look at the ending. Revelation 22, 6 and 7 said, And He said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits, of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. That sounds exactly like chapter 1. He's bracketing the book with this. Soon to take place. And watch what He said. Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 10, He says, The time is near. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon and I'm bringing my recompense with me I'm going to repay each one for what he has done. Verse 20, I am coming soon. You put all five of them together at the end. Five times in the last 16 verses, he tells the churches in Asia Minor that he's writing to in the first century that he's going to come very soon. This troubled me in 97, but I didn't have a solution because I didn't know anyone who thought that the second coming had already happened. I'd never heard that in my life. That is, until the beginning of January in 1997. I think these ending verses here should be very difficult for a partial preterist to handle. Alright? Because the time savings bracket this book cover to cover, meaning everything in this book, including the second coming, the judgment, the resurrection, it was all to happen soon, not some of it soon and some of it later, it was all to happen soon in the first century. You, do you know a one-word description for a partial preterist? A futurist. Futurist. They're a futurist. Well, no, I believe some things happen. Yeah, but you're still looking forward to the second coming. You're still looking for the judgment. You're still looking for the resurrection. Whenever anybody tells me they're a preterist, I try to define that. Okay, what do you believe? Because I consider myself a preterist. I had no clue about the Lord coming, didn't understand any of that. So you got to kind of narrow it down when someone says they're preterists. That term is being used a lot now for people who do not believe what preterists believe. All right? Well, the, that very same week that Vince called me, and this is, you know, strange coincidences, right? The very same week that he called me, never heard about this before, another man writes me, never met before from the internet, because he. Uh, he read my teaching on Revelation. We had, the church had a website at the time. I had some messages on Revelation that I taught as a partial preterist. And he asked me if I could defend my partial preterism against full preterism. And I wrote back and told him, I never heard of full preterism until a few days ago. Let me look into this. I'll get back at you. All right? So a couple of weeks previous to this, which is hilarious when I think about it. Rich and I still laugh about this. I mean... 23 years later. Rich and I would meet every week at McDonald's for coffee and just talk theology and discuss things. And, and I remember saying to him, I remember sitting there at that table at McDonald's and saying to him, I'd gotten to a place in my life where I pretty much had my theology together. <laughs> I pretty much had my theology worked out. Oh, the Lord must have got a good laugh out of that one, okay? Because <laughs> ever since then, it's been changing, <laughs> you know, continually. I just felt like my theological grid was intact, alright? Like I said, Rich and I still, we laugh a lot about that. He remembers it very well, alright? 
And then a few weeks later, after I make that statement, two different men contact me out of the blue, confronting me with full preterism. And something inside of me knew that there was something to what they, they were saying, but I did not want to believe it. Okay? I mean, that's going to put you in a weird spot. Okay? <laughs> I, I knew that that would be a costly theological move. Well, Vince came by my house one day when I wasn't home, and he dropped off two books for me to read. Now, had Kathy known what those books would lead to, she probably would have thrown them out, and I never would have seen them, all right? But those books sat on the edge of my desk for two weeks, and I would look at them like they were of the devil, you know? I mean, I wouldn't touch them. I'd sit around, I'd sit on the couch and study, then I'd get to my desk and study, but I stayed away from them. You know, finally, I'm looking at them, and I'm thinking, you know, I've got to deal with this. I have to at least read, and I guess the reason I was afraid of because I already had this idea in my mind, once I heard it, that sounds like it makes sense. You know, but this is not a good path to go down. So I finally decided, I want the truth. I don't care what it's going to cost. Let me read this, all right? So, <clears throat> I started reading, all right? I began to read the books, and as I did, I was convinced very quickly that the second coming happened in AD 70. And I rejoiced in the truth of Christ's second coming, you know, because I was like, the Lord said this was going to happen, and it happened. That's encouraging. But it also scared me. Because I knew this would be a costly paradigm shift. Alright? One of these books was called Behold, I'm Coming Quickly. It's produced by Pi, Projects and Eschatology. Just a little book, but you just packed with stuff that makes your head spin. Okay? <clears throat> well, after a couple weeks of study and meditation, I reluctantly brought the subject up to Rich at our weekly meeting. And he looked at me like I looked at these other men, like I had lost my mind. But within just a couple of weeks, Rich was seeing the same thing I was seeing. You know, we're on the same page, we're studying this. Well, I think it was only a couple weeks later, Kathy and I were having dinner at my sister's house, and my mother comes to me and she said, I read these verses today, what do you think these verses mean? And the verses she was referring to were these verses, Matthew 16, 27 and 28. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in His glory of His Father, then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, she showed me her Bible. I read these verses with amazement. Here's the thing. My mother had never come to me before and said, what does this Scripture mean? So this is something new, and I've already had these two men confront me you know, recently. And so I looked at her and I said, Mom, I think they mean exactly what they say. And she looked at me kind of puzzled. I said, I think Yeshua came back in the first century just like He told His disciples He would. And she was like, oh, that's odd. <clears throat> so within a couple, within just a couple week period, I had three different people confront me with what the Bible says about eschatology. Now these three witnesses caused me to have a paradigm shift in eschatology. At the time, at the church I was at, I was teaching through the book of Corinthians. I was in chapter 14 when this happened. And I could not go into chapter 15, which is deals with the resurrection. All right, I realized... I don't know anything now. My, my, my theology that I had all together, now I had no clue where, what anything was. Okay, So I was kind of starting over. Uh, so I, I didn't know what I believed, so I knew I couldn't do that. So I announced to the church I was going to take a break from Corinthians while I tried to figure out some problems I was having with chapter 15. Well, in an elders meeting on February 11th, 1997, I asked if I could have a month sabbatical to study through a doctrinal issue that I was struggling with. 
Of course, they want to know, what's the issue? So I told them. I was examining the preterist view of eschatology. They never heard of it. And I found it to be more in line with Scripture than any other eschatological system. Well, after a brief discussion, we didn't get into it too much, I ordered Russell's books, The Parousia, for each one of the elders, handed them out, let's study these books, gave each one a book. Having several weeks to read, the eldership came together, and they were divided. Rich and I saw it. The other two were like, no way. It's not right. We never discussed it. We never debated it. They just said, it's a departure from the church's doctrinal statement. Now that's really hilarious, because we wrote the doctrinal statement. (laughs) We're departing from ourselves. Well, that's what growth is about. You learn, you move on, right? Come on, guys, what is the deal here? We had wrote, so, so in a very short time, it looked as if we came to an impasse. I tried to show them from the Bible what I was thinking and asked them to show me from the Bible where, they, where I, they thought I was wrong. They wouldn't do it. Now listen, you have to have some background here. Up until this point, as elders, when we came to a doctrinal situation that was a change from what we believed, we would go away to a cabin for a weekend or a couple days, and we would lock ourselves together in this cabin and study the Scriptures, debate, talk, go over this. We've done this several times as elders. It was amazing, because when you do that and you're focused, you know, we, we always came out at the same place. These guys, we can't talk about it. I'm like, how? it's the Bible we want to talk about. I didn't, you know, it wasn't some strange off-the-wall book some cult wrote. I said, let's just look at the Bible. No, they did not want to do that. They just, you know, stopped. Well, Rich suggested that as elders we modify the doctrinal statement to allow for both views of eschatology. They flatly refused it. Again, no debate. A legal team from the American Family Association agreed to come in and arbitrate to see if they could help us work things out. But there was no common ground. Now, they said they didn't see the preterist view as heresy. But they didn't think that we could work together. They wanted us to stop studying the possibility of preterism. But we couldn't agree to that. I mean, we're studying the Bible. Something we think we see. We weren't convinced of this absolutely. We weren't going to die for it, but we wanted to check it out. They're like, no, no, no one can look at that. you got to stop that. The elders imposed a gag rule on us. We weren't allowed to talk to anybody in the church with what was going on. So we couldn't debate with them, and we couldn't talk to anyone. And then they offered us two options. You can renounce your understanding of preterism and refuse to study it anymore, or you can leave the eldership and the membership of the church. Well, at this point, you know, we had the option of going public with our beliefs because half of us believed it, half of us didn't, right? That's 50-50. We got as much right to say what we believe as they did. But we were torn by the fact that this is just going to cause a big division in this church. A lot of people are going to get hurt by this. It's going to be harmful. You know, elders get in a big battle over this. So we just decided, after a lot of discussion and prayer among ourselves, Rich and I decided the best thing we could do was just resign and just leave. All right. If we stayed, we knew it was just going to be a lot of strife and division. So rather than cause division, we decided to leave. Now, as elders, we chose the date of April 20th to turn in our resignations. In the weeks prior to that, all the elders worked out the details of us leaving. I mean, 
and starting another church. We agreed to support and affirm each other in the ministry. We agreed to help each other out financially. We divided up the sound equipment, communion supplies, chairs, music stands. We worked out all the details in a very amicable way. My wife was very cautious. She goes, I don't know about this. I'm like, I trust these guys. I told her many times, I trust these guys, okay? They agreed to let us use that church building on Sunday evenings for two months to start a new church. I certainly didn't like the idea of starting over at 43, but it wasn't really a lot of choice there, okay? I mean, when you see something, you see it, and you can't just say, I don't see it anymore, pretend I don't see it, and go on. No, I saw it. I wanted to look into it more. So we had to do something. Well, at the final elder meeting, before we resigned, we held hands together, we prayed together, we cried together. On April 20th, the 11 o'clock service, this place was packed. The auditorium held about 250 people, and it was just packed out, full house. Elders came forward, instead of a message, the elders came forward at that time. Um, We told the people that we had some theological differences, and Rich and I felt it best to resign. The elders didn't want us to even tell the people what the theological issues were. We just told them it had to do with the nature and timing of the second coming of Christ. So Rich and I read our resignations, and we closed the service. One of the guys, Jamie, stood up and said, we reject your resignation. (laughs) I was like, well, that's nice, but we're resigning, okay? All right, now listen. So we resigned. April 20th, 11 o'clock service, and that's when it hit the fan, okay? The two men who had just agreed to support and encourage us now turned against us. They were now calling us heretics, all right? I'm like, what in the world just happened? I mean, my head was spinning. There were several special meetings called by these elders, which they told the people, don't talk to them. They were told that we were heretics and we were to be avoided. See, nobody really knew what we believed because they weren't allowed, we weren't allowed to tell them and they weren't allowed to talk to us. The deacons of that church called everyone in the church and told them to avoid us. They told the people we didn't even believe that the Bible was applicable anymore. At one of their little meetings, one of the elders took a Bible and he threw it across the room and he goes, Dave Kirst doesn't even believe this book anymore. I'm like, well, that's the whole reason we're leaving is because we wanted the freedom to study that book. Listen to this. A deacon told a woman in the church she shouldn't speak to me because I was so persuasive that I could convince him to stand barefoot in the snow. Like, if I'm so persuasive, why am I resigning? Why didn't I convince you elders? Why couldn't I just convince everybody? I mean, you know, you talk about contradictions here. Why did I have to resign? So Rich and I walked away from the church as quietly and peaceably as we could. We sent a letter to the flock to tell them about the new service times for Brian Bible Church. The only people that we talked to were the ones that called us and wanted to hear what's the story, what's happening. Well, Dora called me that next week and said that she had been told by the elders not to talk to me. Now she said, you've been my pastor too long for me not to hear what you had to say about this. So I told her what I'd seen in the scripture about the second coming. And she's like, that makes perfect sense. That kind of clears up a lot of things I've been thinking. And you know, why is this a problem? You know, that was why she said, you know, they're telling not just me, they're telling other people the same thing. She was confused as to why they didn't want people to know this. She was excited. 
And, you know, she just shared that it really made her sad that they were trying to keep her from hearing the truth. Trying to block her from something that was in the Scripture. And she said, I know a lot of others that are listening to them because they're afraid. You know? Well, the families who weren't afraid to talk to us were forced to do a lot of studying. Okay? I remember very well Gary and Brenda. They were spending a lot of time at the library digging up books and trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. Okay? Because this was new to all our people, you know, and because I couldn't really explain it, couldn't lay it out, they're like having a lot of questions. And so when they did get an idea of what we're about, they were doing some study, they were doing some research. And I challenged them to be Bereans back then. That's what it's about. Search this out, see if you agree with it. Everybody doesn't, obviously. But I thank God for those who are willing to literally search the scriptures and give it a look, see, is this true? You know? I mean, and so many people at that church thought I was such a great teacher as long as I taught what they wanted to hear. I love that when people say, I love your teaching. I'm like, which parts? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the ones you feel you like, all right? The negative feedback that we received really surprised us. Yeah, I, you're, you're right. Kathy, Kathy was not that surprised. I had a man tell me that God had just killed David Chilton for believing this doctrine. Chilton had just died previously a couple months, you know, prior to this. And so we had better watch out. We were in a plane crash. Okay, soon after this, Rich and I and two others, our plane crashed. Uh, we walked away from it. But people were saying, God tried to kill us for what we were doing. And I'm like, God tried. He tried, but He couldn't do it. So I overcame God. Wow! I mean, this is how ignorant people are. God tried to kill us. He tried to shut us up. Maybe he was just scaring us. If you keep on this path, you know. But yeah, people, I mean, people who we had known for 20 years were turning against us. You know, we were heretics. We were gone off the deep end. You know, we were of the devil. All this kind of stuff. I received hate mail from people because of what we believed. And they really didn't even know what we believed because we couldn't get into it with them. All right? They didn't ask. I think I can honestly say that for Kathy and I, that was probably one of the worst weeks of our life. From April 20th to 27th. That week was horrible. Okay? Because I'm like, okay, I don't have a job anymore. What do I do? You know, how's this going to work out? We had months prior to this bought tickets for the group Stomp. Any of you familiar with Stomp? It's a percussion group. These guys just beat on drums and you know, all this stuff. And so we'd always want to do this. Well, that week, midweek, we go there, you know, and to this thing. And where was it? Chrysler Hall or something? And uh, so we're sitting there in a in the percussion, and both of us are about to explode, you know, because we're so stressed. And this just makes it more stressful. So we left. We ran back to the car, put on some Christian music, and we're like, ah, you know, we've never, never been back since. I think we could probably go and enjoy it now. But it was a terrible week. I went to D.C. and spent some time with a lawyer friend of mine up in D.C., you know, just talking to him about, you know, what do I do? Do I just quit this and walk away? Do I, you know, what do I keep doing? And he just convinced me. He said, God has gifted you and called you. You need to stick with what you're doing. You know, so I really appreciated Bruce and his encouragement there um, just to keep on going. Now, what I want you to understand here is that we didn't resign over eschatology. Because we really were still trying to figure out what it was we believed. We resigned over the Reformation principle of sola scriptura. The scripture alone. 
See, because we wanted the freedom to study this. When someone tells you you can't study this certain thing in the Bible, something's wrong, people. Because we're supposed to study this book cover to cover. And they're telling us you can't study that. It doesn't matter what men's doctrinal statements say or what church tradition says. What needs to be the guiding principle of our lives is what does the Scripture say? And that's their argument was, this goes against our doctrinal statement. I felt like you guys are morons because I wrote that doctrinal statement, okay? So now I'm the one telling you that I don't agree with it anymore, all right? So let's open our eyes and look at this. The Bible alone is inspired, and what it says goes against what man says. Stick with the Scripture. But let me tell you, it'll cost you. Because the traditions of men are powerful. And it's no different in the church. People accuse us of being proud. And at first I didn't understand that. I'm like, I don't get what that is. Well, because we saw something nobody else saw. I'm like, other people have seen this. Plenty of men have seen it. But the traditions of men blind people to this. i got to say this. I was kind of proud of those two other elders because they had mounted an effective fear campaign. I didn't think they had it in them. I mean, I, I didn't. I mean, I didn't think they had enough gumption to get anything done. But they had done a good job causing that church to fear us. They explained that Satan had overcome Rich and I, and to believe us, you know, we were just teaching air. And they said this doctrine is so pernicious that anyone else who, you know, would easily be tricked by Satan, they had people convinced that if they just listened to us, they'd be sucked off into the abyss. You know, I mean, really. And I, I was, like I said, it was, it was like, wow, you guys did a good job. All right. One lady at the church set out to prove me wrong. She'd heard about it. She's okay, I'll, let's look at the Scripture, see what they say. As she studied the Bible, she was also using the works of Josephus. She came to see that this is actually what the Bible teaches. You know, she believed it was true. So the elders of the church got wind of this, so they called her and they said to her, you need to stop listening to what Dave Kirsch is teaching. She says, I'm not. She says, I'm reading my Bible. I got the works of Josephus. I'm comparing them. She goes, this just makes perfect sense. You know? So you know what they told her? Stop reading your Bible. I'm not kidding, people. They told her, stop reading your Bible. And she did. For Yeah, her husband was along with the elders. You stop reading your Bible. She did for two weeks. And then she goes, this is ridiculous. I'm not doing this. All right? Listen. It was Jennifer. <laughs> they said that we were dangerous. And they're telling people, don't read your Bible. Because the Bible's got bad stuff in it. It's got stuff that will trick you. Alright, listen to what Calvin said about the doctrine of predestination. But instead of predestination, just put preterism in where he says predestination. Because I think it's very applicable here. Calvin wrote this, The Scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit, in which as nothing is omitted that is both necessary and useful to know, so nothing is taught but what is expedient to know. Right? <laughs> The Bible is the school of the Spirit. He says, Therefore, we must guard against depriving believers of anything disclosed about predestination in Scripture. Or anything about preterism in Scripture. If it's in Scripture, we don't want to deny people. He goes, Lest we seem either wickedly to defraud them of the blessing of their God, or to accuse and scoff at the Holy Spirit for having published what it is in any way profitable to suppress. In other words, people act like, don't teach that. 
what's in the Bible, shouldn't we examine it? Calvin went on to say, But for those who are so cautious or fearful that they desire to bury predestination or preterism in order to not disturb weak souls, with what color will they cloak their arrogance when they accuse God indirectly of stupid thoughtlessness, as if He had not foreseen the peril that they feel they have wisely met? Well, God didn't see this was not good for people. We're better than Him. Moreover, then heaps odium upon the doctrine of predestination, openly reproaches God as if He had unadvisedly let slip something hurtful to the church. Yeah. Listen, since preterism is taught in the Bible, how can we be afraid of it? I mean, we believe that the Bible is the Word of the living God. Our doctrinal statement reads this, All the Scripture is verbally inspired as originally written and therefore infallible and errant. The Bible is the very Word of God. We cannot accept the misleading statement the Bible contains the Word of God. See, if the Bible contains the Word of God, then it's other parts they're not, and you get to decide which is which. It doesn't work that way. If we believe the Bible is the Word of God, why can't we believe what it says? Why do we hold the traditions of the church over the Word of God? The Lord clearly told His disciples when He was going to return. Let's look at Matthew 16, 27. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Verse 27 clearly speaks of a second coming. Now, the disciples didn't understand the idea of Him leaving, but they looked for a time when He would appear in full glory and power, bringing in the kingdom, rewarding every man. Now, some say he's talking here about the transfiguration in Matthew 17, 2. Now, that happens six days later. None of them had died in that six-day period, okay? And you have to ask yourself this, because I remember reading MacArthur in MacArthur's study Bible, or no, what was his commentary on Matthew? That's MacArthur deals with this verse. He goes, this is talking about the transfiguration in Matthew 17, 2. You know, it's right there, and he's explaining it, and I'm like, mm, you know, if you don't know better, I guess you can just buy into that. But you have to ask yourself, did he come in the glory of his Father with angels? Any angels of transfiguration? Did he reward every man according to their works? Anybody get rewarded at transfiguration? No, they didn't. Of course not. Well, then how about Pentecost? Some people just says pointing to Pentecost. No, that was only two months later. They're all still alive except Judas. But it does refer to his second coming, as can be seen from comparing uh, verse 27 with Revelation 22.12. The Son of Man is going to come. He says, 22, he says, Revelation 22, Behold, I'm coming quickly. And then he says he's going to come to repay each person. Revelation says to repay each one for what he has done. Look at the next verse. Truly I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Who are the you here? Who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. Now, you just got to go backwards. Let's go to back to verse 24. Then Yeshua told his disciples. That's he's talking to. It doesn't change you know, until we get to our text. If anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take his cross and follow me. And then he goes into this and says, I say to you, you people I'm talking to, you guys standing right here. There are some standing here, not here, there, okay? Some standing there where he was talking to them. You're not going to taste death. 
You guys standing here in front of me, listening to me, are not going to die until the Son of Man comes in His kingdom. What are the possible explanations of this verse? I think there's three possible explanations. If you have another one, I'd like to hear it. Here's number one. There's still some disciples around waiting for the Lord to come. No, you don't buy that? These guys are getting a little old. They're like, hurry up, Lord. We're tired of waiting. 2,000 years old now. All right. We're ti- Listen, I've met people who believe this. They told me. I mean, they wanted to argue with me. Yes, there's some disciples still around. I'm like, oh, man, you are. Okay. The second option, Yeshua was confused or lying. Anybody accept that option? I hope not. Thirdly, here's a, here's a weird one. Yeshua actually did what he said, and he came in the lifetime of those disciples. You know, that's really only a sensible choice. Seems like the simple, clear answer that holds to the inspiration of Scripture. Yeshua did what he said he would do. Yeshua also said, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. Now again, the you here is not you. It's the people he's talking to. Yeshua here very plainly, very clearly tells His disciples that all the things He had been talking about in Matthew 24 would happen in their generation. Now, if you study the context of Matthew 24, you're going to see this includes the Gospel being preached to all the world, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, the second coming of Christ. This is so clear that it greatly troubles those who hold to a futuristic eschatology. I'm sure you've all heard of C.S. Lewis, Right? Well, in his writings, The World's Last Night, C.S. Lewis talking about Matthew 24, and you got to get the last night and read it to try to understand here what he's saying, because a lot of people make a confused C.S. Lewis as saying this, but first what Lewis does, he, he quotes an objector, and then he comments, so let's, he first quotes this objector as saying, the apocalyptic beliefs of the first Christians have been proven to be false. How'd that happen? How did they get proved? Well, they would just say, because the Lord hadn't come. Because the, the way they expected it to happen didn't happen, so obviously they're wrong. Now watch what he says. It's clear from the New Testament they all expected the second coming in their own lifetime. I agree with that. See, that's the thing. These writers who are honest say something's wrong because Christ clearly taught. His disciples clearly believed that He would come in their lifetime. Some people still want to ignore that today. The liberals understand this. And worse still, they had a reason, one which you will find very embarrassing. Their master had told them so. He shared and indeed created their delusion. People, listen. This is why a lot of people, liberals, turned away from Christianity. They understood Christ taught He was coming in the first century. The disciples believed He was coming in the first century. He didn't come, therefore Christianity is wrong. And they walked away. He goes on to say, He said in so many words, this generation will not pass away until all these things be done. And he was wrong. He clearly knew no more about the end of the world than anyone else. Okay, now that's Lewis quoting an objector. A lot of people say that's Lewis. It's not. But then Lewis says this. This is certainly the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. Matthew 24, 34. Yet how teasing also that within 14 words of it should come the statement, but of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, 
neither the Son, but the Father. The one exhibition of error and the one of confusion, of ignorance, grow side by side. So Lewis is saying that what Yeshua said about this generation is embarrassing and he calls it an error. So basically what he's saying is Yeshua was wrong. Well, if that's true, you have to ask, what else was he wrong about? See, if you get going down that path, people, if the Lord made a mistake, if the Lord is wrong, then how do you believe him on anything? You know, he said, whoever believes on me shall not perish. How do we believe that? Maybe he's wrong there too if he didn't understand this. Christ's second coming occurred in the judgment upon Jerusalem as he intended it to be in A.D. 70. His coming was a judgment coming. If you understand the Tanakh, if you understand Isaiah 19, you'll see this. When the Lord came in clouds, it was a judgment coming. And this highly verified historical event signified that sin had finally been atoned for, that the gener- from generation to generation we could now live in the presence of God because He had dealt with sin. We were removed from the separation of God by faith in Christ. But because of his physical view of the nature of the second coming, Lewis just felt it hadn't happened. See, they look for a globe-burning, you know, everything's burned up and we all start over. So that hasn't happened, so therefore they say that didn't happen. So he thought Yeshua was wrong, which that in fact would be more than embarrassing. That'd be devastating, okay, to the cause of Christianity if, if he was wrong. Now, Lewis was the one who was wrong. Okay? Clearly wrong. We can count on the truthfulness of what Yeshua tells us. and Personally, I'm really glad about that. That's one thing that preterism did for me. It just helped me to seal the fact that no matter what God says and how hard our brain is to accept it, we have to believe what He says, not what other people are saying. Okay? Because you're, if you're, we're so trained to think of this physical coming that we're looking with our eyes and we're looking around and saying, obviously it didn't happen. Well, the Lord said it did. Who are you going to believe? Now, most commentators see a generation as referring to about 40-year time span. Um, but the Bible kind of gives us a hint on that too in Matthew 1.17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now, in this genealogical table, we have data to estimate the length of a generation. It tells us from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. Now, the date of the captivity in the reign of Zedekiah is said to be 586 B.C. So from 586 until the birth of Christ would be about 589 years, which divided by 14 makes it an average of about 42 years. So a generation is about 40 years, biblically. That's how they view a generation. So he says, truly I say to you, this generation, this. Listen, he didn't say that generation. He could have said that, right? He could have used the far demonstrative. That generation. Well, then we know it's some other one. But he said this one, the one I'm talking to. Now, here's what's interesting. Here, Very dishonest, but interesting. Some have tried to twist the etymology of the word generation. Ganea. Ganea is generation in the Greek. And they try to make it mean race. But race is a different Greek word. Race is ganas. So they want to switch that and say that what Yeshua said is that all things, these are going to happen before the race of the Jews had passed away. And by doing this, they think they can expand the time of the second coming to thousands of years. And let me just say, there's no biblical, 
There's no linguistic justification for such a position. Generation does not mean race. It just doesn't. Now, C.I. Schofield, everybody heard of him? Schofield Reference Bible, Mr. Dispensationalism, okay? He's all about this, all right? In his Reference Bible, on verse, uh, Matthew 24, 34, he actually switched the definition of the word from that of Ganea to that of Ganas. He switched it. And most people are just going to say, he said that. They're not going to look it up. They're not they're just going to believe what he said. It's an entirely different word. On page 1034 of the old edition Schofield Reference Bible, Schofield said this, Greek Ganea, the primary definition of which is race, kind, family, stock, breed. So all lexicons. No, none of the lexicons say that. That is not the definition of Ganea. That's the definition of Ganas. Totally different word. He switched the definitions around. Because, hey, he's trying to prove a theological point here. That the, that the word is used in this sense here is sure because, of, because none of these things, the worldwide preaching of the kingdom, the great tribulation, the return of the Lord, invisible glory, and the gathering of the elect, occurred at the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus in AD 70. So he says, we know this is this Greek here is wrong because it didn't happen. All right? He says, the promise is therefore that the generation, nation, or family of Israel will be preserved until these things promised wonderfully fulfilled to the day. Well, no, I don't care which Greek word he takes, they're both wrong because there's no Jews today. Any anthropologist will tell you there is no racial Jews today. It's a religion, no longer a race. Okay? So Schofield used the wrong Greek word with his definition. He did so because of his view on the nature of the second coming. Since he felt these things hadn't happened, he needed to change the meaning of the word ganea. The definition he gives is for the Greek word ganas. Ganas is not the word used in Matthew 24-34. So he's just flat out being deceitful. Now they changed this in the second edition of the Schofield Bible because they're like, some people are checking on this. You know, some people are actually looking stuff up. Okay? And listen, when, when you're reading something and they got references in there, look at them. And sometimes you scratch your head and you're like, how do those two? They don't relate. Sometimes they're just thrown in there. You know? It's like, here's some verses. What Yeshua meant by all these things happening in that generation, including the Pharisee of Christ, was that they would all happen while some of the folks who he was speaking to were still alive. Just as he said in Matthew 16. They'd still be alive. The following quote is by David Chilton. It's very informative. Chilton became, Chilton hated full preterists. He called full preterism heresy. He attacked it continually. And then guess what? He became one. Let me ask you some people, what causes a man to become something that he hates and despises? It's got to be the Spirit of God, okay, opening this man's eyes. Well, Chilton came, you know, to this shortly before he died. He writes this. Some have sought to get around the force of this text by saying that the word generation here really means race. And that Jesus was simply saying that the Jewish race would not die out until all these things take place. Is that true? I challenge you. I love that. Okay? I challenge you. Listen, when someone challenges you, take up the challenge. Dig in. See if you can prove them wrong. He says, get out your concordance 
and look up every New Testament occurrence of the word generation in Greek, genea, and see if it ever means race in any other context. Here are the references for the Gospels. He goes, in case you're too lazy, let me give you all the references. All right, and he lists all of them. Then he says, not one of these references is speaking of the entire Jewish race over thousands of years, all use the word in its normal sense of the sum total of those living at that time. It always refers to contemporaries. It always does. And most people agree with this, except in Matthew 24. He says, in fact, those who say it means race tend to acknowledge this fact, but explain that the word suddenly changes its meaning when Jesus used it in Matthew 24. Among those who are partial preterists, who haven't believed that the Lord returns, they're holding to a partial view, there's a lot of agreement with full preterists on the interpretation of Matthew 24 up to verse 35. They'd say that this all talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, but among partial preterists, a debates arise over the proposed shift in topics and errors with verse 36. See, they say verse 36 is a transition verse, and then he starts talking about the end of the world. So first of all, first 35 verses, he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the end there, and now he shifts. Not a bit of evidence to prove this. But they can't believe that it's all over, so, and they understand that the Scriptures clearly teach the destruction of Jerusalem was the coming of Christ, so they've got to come up with something. David Chilton says this, any proposed division of Matthew 24 into two different comings is illegitimate, nugatory, and gossamer. There you go. There's some homework for you. Unless you know what nugatory and gossamer are, go look that up. <laughs> Scripture foretells a second coming, not a third. Bereans, you cannot divide Matthew 24. There is no indication that Yeshua is describing two different coverings, coming separated by thousands of years. What would lead the disciples to conclude that he was answering this, their question this way. Well, I'm coming soon, but I'm coming along again, a long time too. There's no place in the Bible where he says, it's going to be a while before my second second coming. Okay? <laughs> the second coming will be soon, but the second second coming will be a long time off. There's nothing in there like that. So why do partial preterists make such a big deal to divide it? So they'll have some verses that speak of a future coming. Because they can't let go of the traditional view of the coming of Christ to destroy the earth. So they try to get two comings out of Matthew 24, but it can't be done. He spoke of one coming that's going to happen in AD 70 in reference to the judgment coming of Christ upon Jerusalem. Notice what Yeshua said, Luke 21. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, now, you've got to figure he's talking to people then, because you're not going to see this, right? Because you're not there. Forget about TV, okay? They're not talking, he's not talking about watching this on the news, all right? When you, you people living in your see Jerusalem in front of ours, then know that its desolation has come near. That's all. Oh, that's a clue, right? You see this thing surrounded by armies, we're in trouble, all right? Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. If the tribulation is a worldwide event, what good's it going to do you to go to the mountains? It's a local event, people. It's about Jerusalem. So go to the mountains and get away from this. Let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Listen, people. What Yeshua is saying here, all things 
written are going to be fulfilled when Jerusalem is destroyed. All things? What do you mean all things? All prophecy. Every bit of prophecy was fulfilled in the destruction. There's no future prophecy. There's no things yet to be fulfilled that weren't fulfilled at that time. Now, there are some men who believe that Matthew 24 and 25 have all been fulfilled. Yet, they still believe in a future coming of Christ. Men like Gary DeMar, men like John Bray. The desperation of this position is clearly seen in John Bray's booklet, Jesus is Coming Soon. Bray says this, The New Testament reference to the parousia coming of Christ had reference to that monumentous and signal event which occurred in AD 70. The time statements in the New Testament prove this. All right, we agree with that. That's what he's talking about. The time statements in the New Testament talk about AD 70. He goes on, Any reference to a future, to us coming of Christ, found in the New Testament is found by inference and deduction and not by express statement. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, I hold to a future coming of Christ. Don't have a bit of Scripture to prove it, but I hold to it. And you know, how do you argue with that? Okay, you can believe in little green men. Okay, the Bible doesn't talk about it, whatever. So you can believe whatever you want to. But you can't use anything from the Bible because the Bible doesn't talk about it. And Bray came to that position. And then finally, shortly after he wrote this, Bray said, this is nonsense. It's all over. He came in 8070 and we're done. And he realized that, you know, it was a dumb position to hold. But still, some of these guys are still holding to this. I mean, they'll take every scripture about the coming and they'll apply it to 8070 because they have to. And then they're like, yeah, but he's coming again. No. All prophecy was fulfilled in AD 70 in the day of God's wrath, just as Yeshua said it would. And any ideas of a third coming are speculation. They don't have a shred of biblical teaching. Nothing to back them up. There's only one parousia talked about in the New Testament, and that was one that was going to be soon. All right? Now, the parousia that brought about the fulfillment of all promises of God and the fathers of Israel, it fulfilled everything. The majority of churchianity teaches that Yeshua's coming is yet future. But I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. But see, our responsibility is to study the Bible and learn what it says, not to blindly follow church tradition. I believe that Paul's exhortation to Timothy applies to us today as well. Paul told Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So anybody who misrepresents, misinterprets, or detracts from God's word has cause to be ashamed. This verse tells us how to avoid being ashamed, how to be approved. I like the way the King James puts it. The King James says, study to show yourself approved unto God. ESV here says, do your best. Do your best. The Greek word here for do your best is spudadzo. It's a word used of a workman, meaning to endeavor or exert yourself. It's a call for maximum effort. Do all you can, he says, to present yourself to God. The word present here is the Greek word peristemi. It means to stand beside. You want to be able to stand alongside God as approved. Approved is the Greek word dakimas. It means one who has been put to the test and measures up. You win the approval of Him. You win God's approval. And the word worker here is the Greek word ergates, and it means a labor, a toil. See, it pictures a hard worker making every effort to stand approved before God. Now, how is it that we show ourselves approved to God? It's by rightly handling the word of truth. That's the heart of it all, people. The work of God's labor, 
the thing that makes every effort, he makes every effort to do in order to stand approved before God is to handle correctly the Word of God. This was the desire of Rich and I when we started Brian Bible Church. We wanted to handle the Word of God correctly. We wanted the freedom to be able to study it and to just follow whatever we thought it taught. Not what any doctrinal statement taught. Not what men taught. And we saw that what was taught in the Scriptures went against what was being taught in the church. Martin Luther said this at the Diet of Worms. He said, I asked for Scripture. Eck offers me the Father's. He means by that the church fathers. Well, this guy says that. Well, He said, I asked for Scripture. You didn't hear me. He says, I asked for the Son, and He shows me His lantern. So He's showing you. There's no comparison here, people. I asked, where is your scriptural proof? And He adduces Ambrose and Cyril with all respect to the fathers. He says, I prefer the authority of the Scripture. Amen. That's where we need to stand, people. This is why Berean Bible Church was started, because we prefer the authority of the Scripture, and we want to follow it wherever it leads. And if Yeshua lied to us about the time of His return, then He is a liar and He's not the Lord. And we are all dead in our sins. Our cry needs to be the same as that of the Reformers, that is sola scriptura to the Scriptures alone. I don't care what your tradition teaches, I don't care how confusing something seems, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible mean by what it says? We've got to understand that. Now let me just say here, you know, the starting of this church was horrific for Kathy and I. I mean, it was just, I mean, I can remember Cheryl constantly saying, it'll be alright. I think she was lying to us. It'll be alright. But she was telling the truth. It was alright, okay? But it took a while for us to realize that. But she was there constantly encouraging. But I want to say this, the friends that I have made since becoming a preterist, and the fellowship that I have experienced have far surpassed anything I ever understood as a Christian my whole life. And I think the reason for this is because all preterists share an experience of persecution, not from the world, but from the church. I mean, I never really experienced persecution in my Christian life. You know, someone at work would call me a Jesus freak, and that's persecution. Oh, I'll go home crying. You know, they call me a Jesus freak. You know, that's not persecution, people. But you know, when predators are being thrown out of churches, you know, when they're defellowship, people won't talk to them anymore. They're isolating them because of they're believing the Bible. That's persecution. But I think that persecution has drawn us close as a group. Because God uses suffering in our lives to educate us for better service and for better living. You know that prosperity has a way of making us feel self-satisfied and independent. While problems often make us more aware of our need for the Lord. Here's a great passage to cling to. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! Be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so persecuted the prophets who went before you. He says the persecuted are blessed, not cursed. Yeshua says we're to rejoice when we suffer. Now that is like a contradiction. You know, how do we do that? But the New Testament teaches that it's in suffering that we have joy. When we're persecuted, we're to rejoice. And I never really experienced persecution until I became a preterist. Until people who, you know, I liked and had fellowship with all of a sudden now, you know, you can't talk to us, you stay away from us, you have a contagious disease. 
We've been persecuted. We've been slandered. We've been shunned. We've been attacked for our beliefs. What should be our response? Well, let me just remind you that we are not just preterists or sovereign grace preterists. Knowing that whatever happens in time is but the outworking of what God has planned from eternity. Okay? Notice Joseph's words to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me. That's true, isn't it? They hated him. They wanted to kill him. That was their plan. Let's kill him. Daddy likes him. He's dad's favorite. Let's kill him. And Joseph said this, God meant it for good. What? He said God's sovereignly using their sin to bring about His plan. The same is true of our situation. We have all gone through everything we've gone through. God has meant it for good. And I think that much good has come from it. And let me just say that I don't think I've ever been more content, more satisfied, more happy with our local assembly. I mean, I love the fellowship. I love being here with you people. Sunday is my favorite day of the week. I can't wait till it gets here so I can hang out with you all. And I love our extended family. The opportunity we get together with them at conferences and just be with like-minded people sharing. And I get emails people every week from people who write me telling me they got thrown out of their church. I get an email from a guy who his parents ran the church. They threw him out. He was pastoring that church. Parents were on the board. They threw him out. Not only threw him out of the church, they don't talk to him anymore. They don't want anything to do with him. Because he's saying, I think the Bible means what it says? How crazy is that? How crazy is that? I'll tell you people, I really believe that what we're doing here, we're making an impact. Because I hear from people all the time who are coming across our website, they're coming across YouTube, or they're coming across our podcast, and they're like, I can't believe this. Where, how come I've never seen this before? And one thing I've heard over and over is some people say to me, I got a whole new Bible. You know, so much is different. I see things I never understood before. And they're excited, but they're also being persecuted. And they're like, is there any church like yours in our area? I said, there's no church like this anywhere, okay? <laughs> but they want fellowship. They want to be able to go somewhere where they're hearing the truth of the Word of God. As you consider sharing preterism with others, you know, people, some people are reluctant to do this. Oh, it'll mess them up. They'll get kicked out of their church. They won't have fellowship. Yeah, that's true. All that will happen, okay? But probably, but here, I want to remind you of the words of Calvin. The Scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit, in which as nothing is omitted that is both necessary and useful to know, so nothing is taught but what is expedient to know. And if God thinks it's expedient to know, if God put it in the Bible, then it's worth sharing. And this is a cool thing to share with people, I'll tell you. Especially with Christians, it's interesting to see their responses. Okay, Most people that I share this with get excited about it until they go back to their church and talk to people at their church. Then they... Then they don't want to talk to me at all anymore, okay? Because they were thought they thought it was great until I, I had a meeting. My nephew set up a meeting with a bunch of college kids at Starbucks. Will you come and talk to these kids? I'm like, absolutely, you know. So we're sitting in Starbucks and I'm going over preterism. You know, they got their Bibles open and we're just having a great time. Almost all of them by the end of that session are like, "This is awesome." They're all excited. And Matthew, he was just pumped. And I'm like, "Calm down. This is going to change." Go, what do you mean? Sure enough, they went back to their church, back to their parents, back where, and they came out. They didn't want anything to do with it anymore. They were excited about it because they saw things, but then people said, that's bad. Don't believe that Bible. Okay? You get in trouble doing that. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I thank you for the path you've taken Berean Bible Church down, Lord. It's been a long path. It's been interesting, but it's been blessing, Lord. It, it just I thank you, Father, for the people. People who are here today. People who are watching us, Father. People who love you and want to know the truth of the word no matter what it does cost them. Thank you, Father, for the blessings you've given us. Thank you for the just absolute confidence of knowing what you say you do. You keep your word. We're not like C.S. Lewis questioning you that you made errors. We have to question ourselves and straighten out our theology to line up with what you're teaching. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. I pray you'd give every one of us the heart of Bereans that we would search this out to see if these things are so. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. All right. Yes. Has the Son of Man already come in His kingdom? Is that what you're asking? Yes, He has. Okay. Now listen, I know you go to another church, okay, on Wednesdays. You're not going to hear this at that church, okay? Most, most people believe it's future. But like I showed you with all the scriptures, soon, quickly, shortly, we have to take the word at what it says. So yes, He has come. And the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. He is ruling and reigning right now. Most people are looking for a physical kingdom just like the Pharisees of Yeshua's day were looking for a physical Messiah. They rejected Him in His first coming. The church today rejects Him in His second coming because they want to see a physical thing. It's a spiritual reality. We live in the kingdom of God. All the blessings of God are available to us and when we die, we'll go to heaven. that answer your question, Jerome? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Just be careful. <laughs> uh, if you bring it up, you won't be going to that church. There you go, there's Just as a point of reference, I don't know. I was there in 1997 for the, for the uh, resignation and whatever. I didn't, and I was on the deacon board, and I didn't get any information, any request to call the church. But they knew right up front that I wasn't going to be there. Right. So. Well, they knew you and I were friends, and I think they, you know, yeah. they wanted to not give you too much information. Yeah. I already had too much information. <laughs> it was it, for those of you who were there the first service. I mean, I we, there was people standing up yelling at me, saying, "You're the devil." I'm like, this is cool. I never preached like this before. <laughs> you know? But, I mean, people had a, they, they had a hard time with this. You know? They had a hard time with this. Fun times. Fun times. <laughs> let's do it again. No, let's not. Let's not. He has another paradigm shift. I'm out of here. Keep it in time. No reverse. <laughs> Okay, I got a text here. It says, as your extended church family members, we love you both too and the members there and are excited when we can meet together like today and on Sundays and at the conferences. I think that's Marchessa that sent that. Okay, thanks Marchessa. We love you too. We are looking forward to seeing you guys here again soon. Um, these texts are coming in. Paul said, let God be true and every man a liar. If we truly are pursuing biblical truth, we must be willing to stand alone if that's the cost. 
After the testing time passes, then the Lord adds His fellowship. I have reserved 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Encouraging message, he said. Yes, it, like I said, a time of great despair for us turned out you know, to be the Lord's direction to, you know, to send us down this path. And, uh, and it's, been a, it's been a blessed time. It, it really has, despite all, the, despite all that went on there. Uh, that was from Mike Sullivan, by the way. Mike, appreciate you watching. Um, I want to make sure I get all these. Gary Cole says, the irony is that the first century Jews look for a physical overthrow of the Roman government. That's almost exactly what the futurists are looking for today. It's right. It's physical. It's all, we're so physically minded that we can't get past that physical. Um, and we just look for it. And since we don't see it, all right, uh, I'm not sure who this is from, but it says, someday can you share your thoughts on what it means in Revelation when Christ tells one of the churches that when he comes, he will have them rule the nations with a rod, uh, with an iron scepter, and smash the nations. Uh, I think that a lot of that has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem and bringing in the nations. God is wiping out Jerusalem. He's accepting the nations that he rejected back in Genesis chapter 11. He was he because of their rejection of him, he put away the nations. He chose Israel. All the rest were put under other gods. In Pentecost, he starts calling all these nations back in. All right, he rejects Israel because they have turned away from him. He calls the nations and brings them all back into one family as it started. Total fulfillment. Man rejected God. God reached out to that man and brought him back into fellowship with himself. 